Welcome to the Cycling in Alignment podcast, an examination of cycling as a practice and dialogue about the integration of sport and right relationship to your life. Hello there, listeners. After over two years of recording and 80 plus episodes, I am elated to announce that Enduro Bearings has agreed to become a supporter of the Cycling in Alignment podcast. This is a double win for you, the audience. You have the opportunity to demonstrate your support of the show by making a purchase on the website cycling.endurobearings.com and you get to save some dollars while you trick out your whip. Use the code Colby Podcast to receive a 35% discount on any of Enduro Bearings excellent products. That's Colby Podcast, which is all lowercase and all one word. This includes the excellent XD15 ceramic bottom bracket, which is guaranteed for life. That means it may outlive you because, well, it's inanimate. Enduro also makes headsets, derailleur pulleys, as well as bearings for just about everything that rotates on a bicycle. So use your digits to make the keyboard mudras and head over to cycling.endurobearings.com and upgrade your favorite ride now. And remember, the proper number of bicycles is always N plus one, so think ahead. Thanks for listening. Matt Appleman, welcome to the Cycling Alignment Podcast. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Cool. Thanks. Long time listener, uh, first time caller. (laughs) Right on. Right on. Uh, Cool. Are you familiar with, uh, are you familiar with the movie Gross Point Blank? No. Oh, he, that's there. That line is used that movie. It's not an uncommon line, but anyway, just, yeah, it's it's an old John Cusack movie where he goes, he's a, he gets out of college and he joins the military and then he becomes a contract killer. And then he goes back to his high school reunion, which is in Gross Point, Michigan, okay. not terribly far from where you are in, you're in Minneapolis, right? Or yep. St. Paul or? Yep, yeah. Right in Minneapolis. Okay. About yeah. as far away from a gravel road as you can get. Yeah. Deep in the city. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Layered in a spider web of bike paths and. There are a lot of bike paths though. Yeah. So that's nice. Minneapolis is a pretty cycling friendly city now, right? Yeah. Yeah, very much so. Okay. But but yeah, um, I'm Matt Appleman from Minneapolis. I own Appleman Bicycles. And I do, I make money three ways. I build custom carbon fiber frames. I do carbon fiber repair. Mm-hmm. So you damage your trick in a crash. You run it into a parking garage. I can usually fix it. Mm-hmm. And as of last year, I started selling uh, cranks and short cranks. Mm-hmm. And it's a little, it's not obvious at first, but all, all three of those are related. <laughs> <laughs> okay. They're, at Wonderful. least for, for, for me. Yeah. Um, yeah. Kind of my, my like background was I saw... <clears throat> I saw like a cartoon bike course of the 1996 Olympics. Okay. Uh, the mountain bike Olympics. Okay. They had like a full page ad or story about it when I was in fifth grade and I've been like hooked on bikes ever since. Okay. And I started riding on the, on the grass next to the paved trail thinking that was mountain biking. 
<laughs> and it just sort of evolved from there. Uh, I started racing in, I think, 1998 uh, on the road and track. Yeah. Kind of through all my teenage years. Um, every year, my goal was to upgrade to a Cat 3. Uh, it never really, never happened. I okay. think I'm the, the longest running uh, Cat 4 in USA <laughs> Cycling, is, <laughs> at, at least in my own opinion. Okay. Did so then in, kind of, in, Minnesota, in Minneapolis, you're racing the track at Blaine? Yeah. Or, okay. Yep. Cool. Yep. In all, all my all my formative years, I think pretty much my whole whole teenage, you know, middle school, high school life, I was racing road and track or doing group rides every weekend, keeping my parents really busy driving me around. They were extremely supportive. I was very fortunate. Uh, but yeah, I mean, if you count, you know, three, four races a night at the track, I was... I was doing 70 or a hundred races a year. Yeah. You know, we had all, there was a, we used to have a really strong road and track. Now the track is in pieces. It's now yeah. a parking lot mm. for an elementary school. Um, and I just sort of fell out of love with, with road racing. Yeah. Um, I had too many crashes in cat four crits for it to be, worth it anymore <laughs> and uh, and road racing died anyway so yes it was all uh, i i did not i helped it that's for sure i did not support it <laughs> through its last breaths yeah uh kind of fast fast forward um i went to to college and decided to major in composite materials engineering okay it's a a I went to like a little state school in a rural area with really amazing riding. We were uh, along the Mississippi, so there were big river bluffs, one-mile climbs, 10% grade, which is big for the Minnesota area, not yeah. for Boulder. Yeah. But that that was half a mile away from where I lived. So it was really amazing Midwest riding. Um, so, yeah, I did composite materials engineering which was for me was basically carbon fiber bike engineering i was always interested on the tech side of things mm -hmm. um yeah i was like a certified you know lowest level coach usa cycling coach when i was 13 okay so i did not renew that moving <laughs> forward but it was just a test you got it you had to submit and send back and i passed um anyway um, also important to the story, I cross country skied for in high school, which was like a really intensive, we had like a good team. So we skied a ton and looking back on it, that was very helpful to my overall general health. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I go to college, my first, first fall, I ride great. Then I, it's winter, it's snowy. You have to ride inside. So I started riding inside, uh, going to the gym, doing all sorts of exercises with bad technique that I shouldn't, um, didn't know it at the time. Mm -hmm. And by the end of that winter, I had like patella tendonitis so bad. I, I couldn't sit. I couldn't stand. I couldn't walk. 
without at, at least a dull ache. I mean, I wasn't in like shooting agony pain. Wow. I couldn't ride comfortably. I couldn't do anything comfortably. Um, so I started, you know, I, I grew up on Bicycling Magazine and Velo News. So that I, I, I literally, I got a new bike one time and clamped my saddle rails in the center because I thought I was normal. Mm-hmm. Was my, my rationale for fit at the, you know, when I was a teenager. Okay. Um, so I was, I mean, riding's like my, my thing, right? So I had, I was desperate to find a solution. I went to physical therapy, uh, had MRI scans on my knee, nothing, mm-hmm. nothing, nothing. Um, found Steve Hogg's website. And in the early 2000s, he had a, you know, kind of like a huge Q&A People would write in and he would do his darndest to help people. Yep. Um, I don't know if I ever, I can't even remember if I ever wrote in to Steve or not, but I, I mean, I, I poured through everything that I could find on his website and I started, I found the balance test. Uh, so you, you pedal moderately hard, take your hands off the bars and see what happens to your posture. Yeah. And that was like my first kick in the pants that something was wrong that I was like, oh, I can't, you know, I basically, I failed the test. Yeah. Weight riding way too far forward. Yeah. So I found some BMX downhill thing clamp, right? Cut my seat post in half, uh, put, put it in this clamp and it moved me about 40 millimeters back. Okay. It was like uh, before dropper posts, it was like really hack DIY layback, extreme layback seat post. Hmm. That sounds so, potentially hazardous. For yeah, yeah, <laughs> it it worked out though. I still okay. I still have it. Okay. Um, then so I moved forty millimeters back, and I thought, okay, now this is this is starting to help my knee mm. a lot. I got in a lot better position. Still, it was like all through college, I had pain. I eventually found like a a site, like a, a cycling physical therapist, and right away, easy diagnosis. My hips were the problem, not the knee. Uh, every other physical therapist I went to, it's like we need to strengthen the muscles around the knee because that's what hurts. Mm-hmm. So I had stops cross country skiing at that point. It was my first year I didn't ski. Um, so I don't I don't know. I forget technically how you say, but you know, if you like like your like a dog, if you lift your leg to pee. Yeah. The the muscles that you would use in your hips, the side to side motion that I used a ton skiing and never biking. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, once I started strengthening my hips, especially side to side, then start things started turning around for me. Um, okay. Things got pretty good riding. I couldn't go super hard. I couldn't go super long, but I was pretty content with, you know, it wasn't limiting me every day. My, my knee pain, um, graduated from college, 
Got a real job building wind turbine blades um, in South Dakota. Uh, uh, so they're all composite fiberglass and epoxy. So I learned learned a lot there. And that's kind of when I decided, you know, do I buy, I need a custom frame. This super slack seat tube angle seems to do me well. I can't buy, there's nothing even close that I could buy off the shelf. Mm -hmm. So do I get, you know, a few thousand dollar custom frame like a Calfi or, you know, something custom or do I buy the equipment to build my own frames because I'd been sticking tubes together in my dorm room out of carbon fiber and practicing all sorts of okay weird uh, dorm room techniques, I guess you could say. Um, so I chose to put that money towards uh, buying a frame jig and some very minimal tooling to start building my own frames. Um, so that's kind of where, that's what the frames spawned out of. Uh, was just my, my injury and my need to, I couldn't buy what I needed. Yeah. Um, before my injury, I think I would have been really happy working at Trek or, you know, just like what hot, the, the, uh, the vision that bicycling magazine gave me of what the bike industry was. I didn't, didn't really know early on that custom frames were like a real thing. Mm -hmm. And definitely not something that when I was young, definitely didn't think that I could ever build a frame, but, um, my engineering background helped a lot. I built wind turbine blades using the same materials. Um, while I was building wind turbine blades, I did a few thousand repairs on those wind turbine blades. As we made them, there are mistakes and errors and stuff. So we'd have to repair. Right. So I learned a lot of my repair technique from there okay i was working about 80 hours a week got sick of that said mm -hmm. see you later moved us i moved from the second largest city in south dakota or the fifth to la oh wow uh, in, yeah <laughs> so Good. it was a it was a big uh, a whole a definitely a 180 180 change uh-huh um why la uh, I got a job out there, uh, okay. working in aerospace. So we made oh. materials that go into airplanes and, you know, Boeing and Airbus were our customers. And then all their subcontractors would buy carbon fiber and epoxy and pre-preg and all the stuff that bikes are made out of, plus a lot of other stuff. Um, so I kind of got with the wind turbine blades, it was real hands-on working with the material when I was in California, it was more like the materials side of things and testing. Um, I also got sick of that and missed home. So I moved back to Minneapolis. All, all the while, I'd built uh, a handful of frames for myself, or one or, one or two frames for myself um, as I was going along and decided to just jump into it and start building custom frames full-time I was very naive uh, looking back, but it all it all worked out. Um, I found a, a great place to rent shop. I shared with uh, four or five other frame builders. Mm. Uh, they were all steel, 
and every you know as varying degrees of frame builder from super hobby builders just you know coming in on the weekends to other full-time guys who've been doing it for 20 years mm -hmm. so i got really lucky that i could learn a lot not from a material standpoint but just like bikes design yeah new ideas yeah is really fascinating seeing people build steel frames because there's an analogous process to every, every steel process. There's an analogous process to carbon or material. Uh, and I, that was really fascinating. Mm. Um, so soon after I started building frames, what year is this about 2010? Okay. I started, so it's been, uh, 13 years. Mm hmm or just about um, right, pretty much right away, I started doing carbon fiber repair. That actually paid the bills for quite a while as I built the frame business. And at that point, there was only, there's probably only five or maybe six people building handmade carbon frames in the world. Mm -hmm. Most of that was in the U.S. There's probably three or four of us in the U.S. And, you know, two of us, you know, only two of those were like one person. Mm -hmm. So. Um, there aren't that many more now, are there? I mean, there are more, but. No. Yeah, there's, I think there's been a few, you know, there's a lot of brands that come and go. Mm -hmm. Three years, it's a tough, it's a lot of work building a a, a bike frame is really complicated when you have to go and stick tubes and, and make it yourself. Yeah. Um, it's a big undertaking, especially for one person. Mm -hmm. uh, so I did that for, you know, I just started selling cranks a year ago. So I did between carbon frames and carbon repair. I've done that full time for 12 years. Um, so kind of in the early, kind of continuing my story on the way to short cranks, I started experimenting with shorter cranks um, probably around 2014 or so. So uh, maybe we could start off by saying what, what kind of cranks were you riding when you originally had your, your injury my, and all through that period? My, my, whole, length? my whole life, like growing up, everything, 172.5. And how tall are you and what's your inseam? Six to uh, 34 and a half inch inseam. So you're already on arguably a pretty short crank. Certainly on like if we look at Hino's method or even Lalonde's book, like some yeah, 34.5 inseam, you'd be at least 175s minimum. Probably yeah. sevens or 80s. Yeah. Wouldn't be uncommon. For a guy who's 6'2", it wouldn't be uncommon for you to be at no. least on 175. No, no one would blink an eye. Right. Uh, but again... Kind of going back to my bicycling magazine education, 175 yeah. was normal. I was normal. I, mm -hmm. Of course I was. I didn't know any different. So that's right. what I rode. Yeah. Um, so yeah, 2012, I transitioned to 165s. I just uh, kind of had an inkling that I, you know, I still had pain after a long ride or an intense ride. So I wasn't super happy. Mm -hmm. uh, 165s, that seemed to help a little bit. I thought, okay, so this is going in the right direction. 
And uh, this was patellar pain on both sides or just one, one knee primarily? Um, initially, it was both. Yeah. Like when it was really bad for a few years, it was both. Um, as I got better, it was just the right. Okay. So kind of like once, I would say once I could like ride again, comfort, I could go for a 20 mile ride and be, come back and be very happy. If mm -hmm. I went out and did sprints as hard as I could, I would definitely have pain. Mm -hmm. um, if I went 30 miles, I'd probably come back with pain. Mm -hmm. But I could do, for me, that was pretty good to do. Uh, I, I, I don't do like tons of mega distance rides, so I, I didn't need it. Um, 2012, I built a cyclocross bike, went to 165. That helped a lot. Mm -hmm. or help some, I should say. Then there's a, a local guy in Minneapolis here who takes existing cranks, chops the old pedal hole off, drills a new, drills and threads a new hole. So when you do that, you have to leave material. So all you, mm -hmm. you, you don't, you don't quite get to choose your length exactly. Yep. So most of those ended up being about if you start with a 180 crank, it would end up being a 155. Okay. Yeah. Usually. Uh, yeah. So I started riding that and saw a huge improvement in my pain. It actually went away. Wow. And I could really just do whatever I wanted, or I could ride however long and however intense. That's but, fascinating. Just that change. Yeah. All the while, I'm still on my custom bike, like 69-degree mm -hmm. C2 Bengal, mm -hmm. way back, in a, rel in a relatively aggressive road race position. Mm -hmm. uh, and when, when you go that far back, your knee starts getting closer and closer to your chest as you get more on top of the bottom bracket. Um, so the 170, you know, 165 and 172.5s really weren't, they helped. It the going back helped. Mm -hmm. Uh behind the bottom bracket further. Physical therapy helped huge. And then probably equal thirds, I would say, was geometry, therapy, and crank length. Crank. Yeah. Yeah. Cause as we push your butt further back behind the BB, you you put less stress on the patella, less shearing force in the patella. And yes. you turn your crank, you put less shearing force in the patella. But as we push your butt further back, of course, it increases the demand on your hip hinge and your posterior chain mobility, right? Yep. You got to have the glutes and hamstrings to handle that hip hinge. Yeah. And I, I didn't realize before all this, I had no ass. And I grew, <laughs> I grew one with you grew an ass. Yes. Yeah. got a whole lot stronger. Yeah. And well, I mean, given muscles, your injury history, yeah, given your injury history, it makes sense. I mean, you know. If you go injure yourself bilaterally, patellar tendonitis, like that's quad dominance almost for sure. And hundred percent. And yeah. medial rotational instability combined. Yeah. Yeah. Which is and what I'm, you're describing with the adductors. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm generally very long and lanky. And I, I had a, a coach back in the day say, Oh yeah, you just you know, you like long, skinny kids, you just you have these long limbs and have no musculature to control them. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, looking back, I kind of see that, yeah, that's like fairly, fairly true. I mean, yes, I could do core to specifically address that, but instead I just kept riding. 
<laughs> just most of what I knew. I really think the cross-country skiing was just enough to get me through all my summers. Ah, uh, it. I think that really activated my glutes and kept my hips and everything a lot healthier and happier and, you know, could get me to fall by the time I started doing a lot of cross training again. Yeah. And you were, you were skate skiing primarily, right? Yeah. Or you were classic. Yeah. Skate skiing. Uh, so I mean, really skate. So yeah. it was all side to side, like roller skate motion. Yeah. Uh, mm. Yeah. So I was on 155s, uh, pain-free, happy as could be for... I don't know, five or six years, I suppose. Uh, and then I, I started sell, I started building bikes similar. I would find, you know, people say, I would see, I started looking at knee angle as sort of, uh, you know, I would look at what, what angles of my knee at the top of the pedal stroke hurt me. Mm -hmm. And what, what did that get to when I was happy? started applying that to some of my customers who were up for it. I'd say about half of my custom frame customers were like totally down for 155s to try. Mm -hmm. And half of them went down to 170. Right. And, and that's fine. Uh, right. I think everyone was pretty happy, but I got a lot of good feedback from people riding the shorter cranks that existed, mm -hmm. you know, in the last... 10 years, seven years. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, yeah. I was kind of onto something. I thought, wouldn't it be nice to have short cranks that I didn't have to, I could use on my mountain bike that I, you know, and this guy in Minneapolis, who's like drilling a new hole and chopping off the ends that yeah. works, but they're generally low level, old style, like most of them are square taper cranks that you can do that mm -hmm. too. So like yeah. there's very little modern compatibility to that. You can make it work. There are, he has a lot of solutions for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. uh, but I thought it's like too hard. Rotor offers short cranks, but not for mountain bike. Um, mm -hmm. Definitely not for fat bike. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, so it's these things as a frame builder, I needed... I needed these tools. I recognized there was something to changing crank length and I didn't have the tools that I needed to build the best bike possible. So that's kind of how I probably, I thought about doing short cranks for a long time, mm -hmm. but I didn't really have the, the wherewithal or time or I don't know. Mm -hmm. It just, it just, it it would be nice, but it wasn't a must. Um, fast forward 2020, I started doing my tubing for the carbon frames. I was buying tubes that I I designed tubes that someone else would manufacture for me. Yeah. Um, that was Envy for a while, wasn't it? That was Envy. Then I transitioned to a, a place in Minnesota. Okay. Um, that was able to do a lot more customization and envy told me they were doing customization, but then it wasn't as custom. Everyone was getting the same. Okay. Everyone was getting the same thing. Mm. And luckily those were pretty good tubes. Okay. 
But like the tubes on your bike, those were made in Minnesota by this, I guess, subcontractor. Uh, when I started using them, they were growing, they were getting bigger. And by the time, by 2020, they were like doing real well, raised their minimum orders, were kind of pricing me out. I was like very, very small come up in business for them. So I said, screw it. I'm just going to start making my own tubes. Okay. That's a lot of, of my competitors had started doing. Mm. Um, I learned a lot doing that. It took, I probably worked on it. I worked on it like so much for at least a good year. And I bought uh, some like CNC, some very low level like CNC equipment and all sorts of some tooling. I built some stuff to help me build tubes. And it was supposed to be fairly, it's supposed to be easier than it was. Mm -hmm. And I ended up sort of regretting even going down the path of like trying to bring everything in house. Mm. I already did a lot for a free. Mm. Yeah. I, I didn't buy much pre-made stuff for a frame. I was making dropouts and all the pieces. My frames are externally very simple and internally very complicated. Very complicated, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So luckily, I, I didn't totally ditch making my own tubes. I had ambitions to like sell them to other frame builders because it was going to be a fairly simple process that I could do. Mm. I'm my own worst enemy. I need everything like done how I want it. And I couldn't, I couldn't live up to my own standards building the mm. tubes. It took too long. I created a monster of a process. I made a really, really amazing tube. It just took like way too long to get there. Okay. Um, that's sort of, that's sort of where I went with frames too. Um, I built a really, really good bike. I just sort of, it came to the, I started realizing that I kind, I, I, I kind of hated building them. <laughs> I wanted to build the best bikes, but I also didn't like it mm -hmm. very much. Mm -hmm. uh, so meanwhile, I had acquired all these like skills and like, I had dabbled in CNC stuff, which is like computer controlled machining. Um, I had dabbled in that making stuff for the tubes and for carbon. Um, and I speaking with my wife, I don't know. I was, I was going to build her a bike. This is like COVID now. So I'm going to build you a bike. Um, I looked at this other bike online and man, if you, that's similar to what we wanted to build, kind of like a drop bar mountain bike. And I looked up some other geometry from larger manufacturers and I was telling her, oh, you can do this. If you just shorten the crank, then you can shorten the top tube and you can right. slacken the seat tube and you can do all these amazing things and yep. it changes everything. Mm -hmm. And, but I don't have a crank for it. Right, right, right. Yeah. 
maybe I should do cranks. Now I know a little bit about machining and all this. And I basically talked her ear off so much that she said, well, why don't you just do it then? <laughs> and I thought, well, that's a really good idea. Um, so that's kind of how I got. So at that, and at that point, like my frame sales had started dwindling. I had kind of put myself into the ground trying too hard to build a custom frame. Yep. So in the last few years, I've built very, very avid followers of me will have seen my frame numbers have dropped off drastically. I never built a lot. Mm -hmm. But like since COVID started, I've built two frames for, for people. One was for a friend. Oh, wow. Yeah. I know that. Yeah. Okay. So it, it really, um, I kind of, I, I identify as a frame builder. <laughs> it's part of it, that's the hard part. It's like part of my identity, but I didn't really like the actual build process mm. or it was so stressful, especially in COVID either. It was either I was running like way late on the frame because I took their deposit a year and a half ago and, you know, I'm took a few weeks on every build or something got late. Now a year and a half later, I'm three months behind. behind yeah. Stresses me out like no other. I don't like holding people's money and not giving them something that I promised them. Yeah. Um, so it was very stressful for me. Yeah. Um, so I, I, and it, of course my wife is really wonderful and like, she saw all of this, but I didn't. She's like, every time you build a frame, you're in a terrible mood. Mm. Like the whole time you're building a frame, you're like always upset or things will trigger you much easier. Mm. Why don't you just like take a break from it? Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, I've got to finish some frames first. Mm -hmm. um, but there was, I, I also had so many, it was either me running late with frames or you know, customer breaks their leg, um, gets into trouble with the tax man and kicks the can, you know, maybe next year I'll be able to pay for it. I mean, it's just like all these things, like I wasn't doing well, my customers weren't doing well. Mm. So I, I gave some refunds back. I cleaned my plate. I was super happy. And I just started taking a weight. I, I changed how I, how I build. And I, right now I just, I put you on a wait list with no deposit, um, and I'll build you a bike when I'm ready. I'll reach out mm -hmm. if you want a bike and your name's at the top of the list, I'll tap you and say, Hey, are you ready to go? Because mm -hmm. we'll finish, we'll get a bike going in like a few months or less for you. Mm -hmm. If you're not ready, I'll go to the next person on the list. Mm -hmm. And that was like a very dramatic shift for me. Mm -hmm. Um, so I quickly carbon repair kind of became the main business, much less sexy. Mm -hmm. Um, and I started designing these cranks, having the, having the crank project and knowing that was in the future was sort of like, okay, I can like make enough money to live and sort of drop the, the need for custom frames. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like I don't I don't need to build custom frames to survive in this world. 
Um, so yeah, that's basically okay. how, how I arrived at at making aluminum cranks. Okay, they're, they're aluminum because it's one. It's probably the best material for a crank, mm-hmm. uh, just from a practical standpoint, and it's also would be much. My cranks aren't cheap, but they would be much more expensive if I did them in carbon. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I also had, you know, something of a come. I when you work for yourself, you only have so many matches to light, and uh, holding the cranks and carbon repairs and custom frames, and now having it, I had a a new child. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a lot. So I decided to just like put put frames on the back burner for a little bit um and move forward with the cranks and yeah sounds like you evolved in your own hero's journey to the point where you almost got crushed by the weight of your own empire this is how we might look at it right yeah the the it, funny part was is I didn't I didn't really even realize it Mm. like it really took because i i work all alone and i mean like alone all day i don't have mm-hmm. colleagues i don't have a lot of frame builder friends that i like talk to every day um so yeah my my wife's great and she really kind of just pointed it out just yeah. like i don't think you're happy building frame. maybe you are but mm-hmm. i don't think you are mm-hmm this is uh, one of the reasons we get married is so that we have someone to yes <laughs> be our reflecting pool at the right moment, right? Yeah. 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 My, my wife's given me a lot of really powerful and timely advice in my life too. So. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm grateful for it. Even though sometimes I'm like, what are you talking about? You don't know what you're talking about. That's not right. I'm sometimes wrong. you don't want to hear it. You don't want to hear it. But and that And that's where kind of like my identity as a frame builder, it's like, that's what everything was built on. Mm. So it's hard to say maybe that maybe that part of me like isn't going to be the primary shouldn't be like the primary mm. part in my life. Maybe. Maybe maybe you're just waiting for it to come back out in the right way. So I am now I'm I'm uh I'm I'm excited again to start building bikes. I'm going to exhibit at the Philly Bike Expo. Oh, great. Uh, in March, 2024. Cool. Um, so I've got some time. I'm, I've, I've met a, a, a colleague, uh, Ben at July bicycles in Rhode Island. He's mm-hmm. built a hand kind of, it started as sort of a mentorship. I was helping, giving him advice. He's a, he's an artist. Um, I'm an engineer we had different skill sets. So now we're doing a little bit of collaboration. He's helping me out with some finicky uh, frame parts, some small parts, kind of of my design. Mm-hmm. And I'm helping him refine his build process and figure out some of the more technical aspects. But okay. I'm ex- yeah, excited to move on. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I'll be frame building again. I don't know if I, hopefully I'll tap some people and say, I'd love to make you a frame. Mm-hmm. We'll, we'll see how it goes. Um, 
But well, having ridden your bike, what what year did you make my road frame for me? It was twenty seventeen. I 16? believe so, somewhere in there. Yeah, sixteen yeah. or seventeen. Because yep. it was the second year Oat Route was in the U.S. So I think that was 17, if I remember right. That sounds right. Yeah. And I mean, Look, I, I have a It was a long build process. So, mm-hmm. you know, you might have, we might have started the conversation in 2016 and that's probably awesome. delivered it and ridden yeah. and. Yeah. So I definitely rode it for Oat Route. And, and I don't ride your bike exclusively by any means. I have like. I'm a total N, N plus one. For a while, I was doing pretty good. I was down to like yeah. four bikes for a while. And now okay. things have exploded again. Uh, <laughs> because of my work with TMF coaching, the Cannondale keeps blessing me with oh. new toys. So yeah. I have like duplicates of everything, just about. Sure. Uh, hard problem to have. But yeah, I mean, I'll say, Matt, you're, you're an insanely talented frame builder and your product <laughs> is totally unique and gorgeous. So if you guys haven't checked out Matt's website, I'm going to give you the first plug right now. Go see his website. Uh, and look at some of his artwork on there. It's yeah. nuts. There's nothing else like it on the market, honestly. So it's yeah. applemanbicycles.com. That's right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's all, I mean, I'm a, I'm a materials guy at the end of the day. So I really, I, when I'm building a frame, I, my whole goal is basically to like, let the carbon fiber do what it wants. Mm-hmm. And that's like, maybe sounds like a really weird way to talk about an inanimate thing, mm. but different materials like different things and they don't like some things like most materials don't like having a hole drilled in it. Right. Right. Think about it. Uh, yeah. Carbon doesn't like sharp corners. Uh, it also doesn't, makes sense. you know, so, so I know what carbon wants. I know what it needs. I know what it likes to be strong, to be stiff. Mm. Um, so that's that drives my build, which then it, it, the aesthetic that I have is sort of the result of that. Mm-hmm. And it ends up being very minimal, uh, very subtle, very materialistic-y. Mm-hmm. Uh, what comes to me is you're sort of tapping into the soul of carbon in a way. You're... Yeah. You're working with the material and how it wants to be worked with. Yeah. That's cool. I mean, I often say this to my clients as a reminder, but you know, bikes in particular are so, they're such young, like things, constructs. There's so much about doing, right. We're going to go ride the bike and smash the watts and climb the mountain and conquer the mountain and win the race. And, and what comes with that is a very masculine mindset, which is very rigid. It's very, uh, like a sword. It cuts, right? Yeah. And when we cut up nature and make it into man-made things, what do we do? We make it into straight lines. Like, mm-hmm. look at this room I'm in, boxes. Right. Like, what did the Native Americans say when when we first started to relocate a lot of them and put them in on reservations and buildings that were made by the U.S. government? They were like, you can't put us in these rectangular houses. You're killing us. The, en- the room has no energy, mm-hmm. right? Because they live in round houses, right? Round, triangular, like cone-shaped houses. Uh, Probably not. Perfect 90 degrees everywhere. Right. But whatever it is. You know, whatever. Yeah. A little yeah. more organic. A little more organic. So we we impose, when we impose our man-like ideas of our left brain on the world, we make a lot of straight lines. And there are almost no straight lines in nature. No. And so bikes have a lot of straight lines on them. But 
you know, what you're doing is looking at the material of carbon and specifically when you join, like I'm looking at a picture right now of your bottom bracket on your, on your webpage and, and the form is very blended. It's very organic. It's very, it takes the, the round shape of the tubes and it brings them together in a way that flows. Yeah. And when we think of carbon fiber as a paper, right? Yeah. Often it comes like in sheets. Fabric. It's a yeah. fabric, right? Like fabric, fabric doesn't like, like try to make a, a right angle with your shirt. Like that's not really going to work, yeah. you know, or yeah. a pair of jeans. Paper is almost, especially, you know, I, like I said, I'm my own worst enemy. Um, your bike, it, the joints are all made out of unidirectional carbon. Mm-hmm. That, that's like paper. Like you can't shove that into a compound curve. Right. That, a, something that curves two directions at the same, at the same time. Like a Pringle. Same point. Uh, right. Yeah. So you, obviously I've done it. Other people have done it, but it's really difficult. Mm-hmm. And it takes a lot of time to massage the carbon and mm-hmm. you need to cut it in a way, you know, it'd be really easy if you could just snip, 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 but then it's not going to be strong. Right. So it, you know, you, you could get it to look good. You could get it to be quick and easy, mm. but then it wouldn't be strong. You could so have this, it very strong. Mm, interesting. You could have it not look good. This explains why a lot of carbon bikes out there that I know of look quite good and break somewhat regularly yes they're not they're not respecting the soul of the material you might say or the properties yeah well yeah there's a lot of there's a lot of things that go into breaking carbon frames but yeah it it, and i've done over 1300 repairs on carbon bikes and Mm -hmm. i'm happy to say that though the the vast majority of them are people messing up yeah cars Driving your edges. Yeah. Um, lots of blowovers. Yeah. You know, leaning against a sign or a wall and it like hits a concrete step or yeah. hits another sign or something. Uh, once I had a, uh, a father whose teenage son took a hammer oh. to the top tube out of oh. anchor. Oh. Yeah. Was it his, his dad's top tube or his own top his, tube? His dad's top. His dad's oh, dear. Yeah. It was like a it's like a Ferris Bueller moment where he kicks the car out the glass garage door. <laughs> huh. Okay. That was only one, but the vet I guess my, my point was that the it's impressive to me that the vast majority of things I see are not manufacturing defects. Yeah. And that probably wasn't the case 10 or 15 years ago in carbon, certainly not 20 years ago. I bet you saw a lot higher incidence of that. Can you imagine? I um, so. Yeah. Yeah. It's gotten better with time. Mm. Um, one, I, I won't throw any brands under the bus, I guess, but like what in many years, one brand still hasn't fixed their seat tubes. Oh, oh boy. I don't I'm not sure what they're doing. Okay. But it's like, wow, when I see this type of crack in a seat tube, oh, yep. Mm-hmm. Nine times out of 10, it's that. Same brand. Oh, boy. Yeah. I'll let the readers go spelunking on the internet to try to figure out what that is on their own. <laughs> yeah. I, there, mm-hmm. there are a few, few known defects, you know, that everyone gets on a forum and says, oh, yeah. my yeah. suspension is cracking here. And me too, me too, me too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. So have you done much research or reading of like Jim Martin's work, for example, about crank length? He's got quite a bit of 
he's dug quite a bit into that. I'm sure you know who he is, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, I've, I've looked at it. I probably haven't read everything, but I've looked at it pretty extensively and mm-hmm. he has some presentations and stuff online as well. And I've, um, listen to him on podcasts and yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm pretty well acquainted with, with what, yeah. what he does. I'd like to get him on, on my show at some point, but yeah, maybe we can just boil it down, uh, for the listeners, like your perspective and how you like to explain this. I, when people ask me about crank length, this is the explanation I give and I'd love to, I'll, I'll just say it and then you can tell me what you think and kind yeah. of how you interpret things. But people, yeah. a lot of people have the really old school belief that a longer lever equals more torque equals more power. And that's not untrue, but that's a second grade way to look at really what's a PhD level problem, yep. right? That's how I view it. And I also will tell people that the only people who are justified in pushing the envelope in crank length are riders who are making a paycheck racing their bike and probably riders who are trying to win the Vuelta because the Vuelta every year has about half a dozen stages that finish on like a 25% grade. Mm -hmm. And in that moment, if you're a climber and you're getting paid to win climbing races, the longer crank you have, most likely the faster you're going to go. But those are very specific conditions. You're on a really steep grade. For those 30 minutes. Yes, yes, for those 30 minutes of the entire <laughs> season of the 10,000 hours you ride your bike, how many it is, you have to, that's the point is you have to be able to drag those long ass cranks around the whole rest of the season without injuring your knees or causing saddle sores or low back pain or all the other potential complications of crank arm length, long mm-hmm. crank arm length. So, you know, at that moment, what, what are the, the conditions that are where a really long crank will pretty much unquestionably help everyone, not, not the longest cranks, but a longer crank for that individual mm-hmm. are very high torque, very low cadence, you're out of gears, you're going as hard as you can, and your objective is to complete the distance as fast as possible. Mm-hmm. And those are actually, that's quite a specific list. Yeah. Um, you know, for someone who lives in Minnesota, you might ride a whole season and do lots of long bike rides and almost never have those conditions because you guys don't have long climbs there. Like, you right. might have moments here and there. Sure. But, but, you know, here in Colorado, it's easy for me to find those kind of conditions if I'm inclined to go as fast as I can up a steep climb. Mm-hmm. No, I'm definitely not a pro anymore. And I'm for sure not in the category of rider to win the Vuelta. never was, but, <laughs> and, but then we also have to look biomechanically at the athlete, like how stable are their hips, right? Yeah. What are their, what are their joint angles like, or what are the relationships of levers that they're using? You know, femur to tibia ratio, how, what, what is their strategy for making power? Are they quad dominant athlete or are they posterior chain glute dominant athlete. You can have both. It's more common to find athletes that are quad dominant in my experience. Mm-hmm. And those tend to be the athletes that have more dysfunction. Maybe it's just because they're more common. That's probably true. Right. You just have to look at the data set you see and ask the question like, is it a yeah. data set? Well, probably like I'm a bike fitter. So I see people that have problems. Right. I don't see the people that don't have problems. They don't bother to pay me, which is fine. Go ride your bike. But we have to look at the, the, the specific application of power in that person from a biomechanical standpoint and ask the question, what is a longer crank going to push the envelope for you in a meaningful way for performance versus it's a risk reward calculation. And the hard part for me in your case, actually, I would say it was pretty clear cut, like longer cranks, knees hurt, shorter cranks, knees are better. Even shorter cranks, knees are way better. Short enough. Finally, knee pain's gone. Like, yes, that's a really interesting trajectory. The harder problem to um, discuss with athletes is when they have chronic low back pain, mm-hmm. but they're not understanding the correlation between. Yeah. Right? That's no, that's pretty far removed. 
It seems like it. Adjusting a crank. Right. You're back. Well, okay. Here, for those who are watching, (laughs) it's pretty simple. Giant lever at the feet equals less stability at the hips. When I do it this way, it's pretty obvious, right? Imagine a 400 millimeter crank. Now try to make your hips stable on a saddle. They're not going to be very stable. Now put you on 100s. Go ride a tricycle. It's easy to keep your hips stable. So. The the hundreds are here. Here's my my fit crank. Yeah. Yeah. The the fit crank has six, six here. This is a hundred here. There you go. This is the the center of the axle. Yeah. There's so yeah, the, um, a guy told me when I was starting the crank project, he said, there's, there's two reasons to have short cranks. Mm. One is you just are small or have short legs or, you know, just normal body proportions. Mm-hmm. And that I chose that to go down to 135 millimeters. Then he said, then there's a, there's a big gap where people have some sort of really biomechanical reason, um, prosthetic, uh, knee surgery, hip, you know, some major, usually like, third party sort of interference in their normal life where you would need a hundred millimeter crank. Yeah. Uh, a much reduced range of motion, basically. Yeah. Like extreme. Yeah. So that, yeah. that's why there's not, not many people need a 120 mm-hmm. because you would have to be, you know, four feet tall for that. And there's not a whole lot of people that are four feet tall, but there are people four feet tall who want to ride bikes. There are. Just, yeah, exactly. Sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so I just I chose not to like fill in the gap between one, one thirty five and one hundred. Yeah, um, just give them the the hail mary at the hundred. Yeah, really need it, and then yeah, grade eight from there. Yeah, I th- right. that makes sense. That makes sense. And then yeah, and I guess I, I haven't really like so so my cranks they're aluminum just to like give people a general overview. Yeah, um, they're aluminum. The the main the the sizes range from one seventy five to one thirty five mm-hmm. in ten millimeter increments. So no, I I can safe to say I will never make a one seventy two point five <laughs> millimeter crank uh, because this is this is two and a half millimeters. Yeah, and that doesn't do much. Yep. Uh, and that so a, a a wide range of crank with a ten millimeter gap between them because that creates a meaningful impact. If you change your crank a small amount, you're going to have a small amount of impact or benefit or benefit from. That. And this is one of the results of some of Jim Martin's work. He's a he's a PhD uh, at University of Utah, by the way. In case people don't know, and you just search him online and put in Jim Martin crank, and you'll get a bunch of stuff for him. But, you know, one of the studies I'm looking at from him, he, he tested range lengths ranging from 120 to 220 and found almost no difference in maximal four second maximal sprints. And that's just one protocol. But the, but the point is, it may have been the the 220, he might not have even been able to do, or he wanted to do more, Yeah, but he like couldn't ride. People couldn't ride the lot, whatever the longest was. People couldn't write. Yes. But even in that length, there's still, the point is the power, you know, people assume that they're going to have some drastic change in power, you know, over a given duration. And I think it's important for us to look, we do need to look at threshold versus sub maximal versus 
sprints, that's important to break that apart and consider the differences. But yep. generally speaking, you look at a, a lot of this data and, and we imagine these massive differences in going from a 170 to 172.5. And a lot of people come to me with that exact conundrum. They're like, well, I've been thinking about going to shorter cranks. I'm on 72. Should I go to 170s? It's like, um, you should go at least 10 mils minimum if you want to notice anything. I, and I recommend you, don't save your money if you're, unless you're going at least five millimeters. Minimum. Like minimum five. Yeah. If you're going less yeah. than five, save your right. money. Yeah. Agreed. Don't. And I'm so glad you made that test crank because this is, this is one of the hardest problems to solve. Like, like getting people to try new saddles is a hard problem to solve. And that's why I have my SMP demo program and I demo other saddles as well, because everybody's in the same boat. Like you go to change a saddle, you're like, ah, oh, this thing's kind of uncomfortable, but it's okay. You know, I can deal with it. And, but then they don't want to deal with buying a new saddle, putting it on their bike. Cause it looks nice, but they have no idea what it's like. They put it on their bike. They ride it for five minutes and go, this is terrible. I just spent $300 or $200 on a saddle. Right. And I have, customers come to you with nine, 10 saddles. They've done that with mm. same with shoes yeah. and cranks is even more so, especially if someone has a power meter on their bike, it's just a mess, right? Like, yeah, because somebody has been riding 175s for 10 years or 15 years, but they've got chronic low back pain or chronic knee stuff. And you're going, look, I really think you need to try shorter cranks, but that's, that's the problem is ultimately they have to try them. And yeah. even with your solution, it's not easy because unfortunately we have to there's always bottom bracket standards to deal with and bearings and chain lines and, and chain rings and everything else, right? It's a mess. Yeah. It's a mess. Thanks, bike industry. You you guys are all to blame for this. I'm blaming all of you. <laughs> Knock it off at the freaking bottom brackets already. Ridiculous. Yeah. But yeah. And chain ring standards, et cetera. Yeah. But but um, so any any progress we can make in solving those problems to help riders figure out solutions is is definitely um needed and welcome. Uh, I have an SRM e-trainer in my studio and it's got an adjustable crank length. So mm -hmm. when people are curious, at least enough to just try for a few minutes, I can put them on there and we can make all the changes and let them try that. That goes down to 150, which is pretty good um, yeah. considering the thing was made a while ago. And right. somebody's on 175, you put them all in 50s, they'll obviously notice. But I also would like to ask you what your protocol is. I'm sure you have some info on your website about this. I think I've seen the yeah. article about how we change. So let's say I, I get this question all the time and I have my ideas yeah. on it, but okay, let's pretend someone's going from 170s to 150s. So 20 mil shorter crank. What's your recommendation on what they do with their saddle height offset? And also do they change stem? Yeah. Height, et cetera. So if you're changing 20 millimeters, um, I don't know exactly what percent that is. Uh, a big question we get a bit is what, math if you want. What, what do I do, what do I do uh, for gearing? Yep, that's do also I, a question. Yeah. Um, well, let me let me just I like I like talking in numbers. Okay. Let me. Uh, I'm whipping out my phone. I'm going to calculate. Cool. Uh, one seventy five to one fifty five is about okay. a thirteen percent change in crank length. Um. My my initial recommendation is, especially if you don't have to change chain rings, if you don't have to buy a bunch of stuff anyway to make this work on your bike, just ride what you have. Mm -hmm. Don't don't change gears. Um, change your saddle height. Mm -hmm. uh, at a bare minimum, 
I think, you know, if you're changing 20 millimeters, you're probably going to raise your saddle 18 millimeters, something like that. You're going to have to do a little bit of play by feel. Almost and one just, to one. Almost. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, every, every butt's a little different, right? So. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, r- roughly the same amount, probably okay. give or take, um, assuming your saddle height's spot on. If it's right. too high, then, you know, maybe you only go 10 millimeters and, and then you'll be, be good. Yep. Um, so I, I try to be practical about it. And if you don't have to change, uh, try it out. You, okay. You, I've personally have found my cadence hasn't changed. Um, I, I've gotten stronger with shorter cranks because I'm my, my legs and hips aren't going all over the place. Mm-hmm. I'm much more stable and can really like, I, or I've just adapted to it. I don't know. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, if you, if you do need to change gearing, um, I recommend about, uh, half the change. So if you're in our example, you're changing your crank length, 20 millimeters, 13%. Mm-hmm. So, if you can change your gearing about six or seven percent, mm-hmm. um, and that usually equates to, I think, two to four teeth mm-hmm. on the on the chain rings. Yeah. Uh, kind of, I'd, you'd have to depends what chain ring you have, how many, what what percent reduction that would be, but it's usually like two to four teeth smaller. Whereas if you went for the full, if you're already, if you spend 90% of your time climbing in the, in your easiest gear, right. You probably, you should probably, you might want a an easier, smaller than that anyway. Yeah. So maybe yeah. you go the full 10 or 13%. You if know, gearing exists. Yeah. If that right. gearing exists, it's, right. um, I feel like most gearing, unfortunately is already kind of maxed out on the low end. For most bikes now, there's not like, there's not most groups don't have yeah. huge, yeah, uh, ranges, especially to go lower, mm. unless you start swapping cassette and chain ring, uh, which means derailleur, and that may be derailleur, yeah. Uh, so it gets complicated, um, but I'm I'm not a big fan of just like immediately go for a one to one change of crank length and gearing. Okay. Uh, as far as like fit wise, again, like I, I'm not a kind of a direct observational bike fitter like you, you know, Mm -hmm. you, you can look at every individual as an individual to generalize stuff. Um, you have to raise your saddle when you shorten your crank, everything just gets moved up. Yep. Um, if that doesn't work for you, uh, start moving your seat back if you can. Um, and if that's still not working for you, maybe raise the stem. Mm-hmm. You know, you could raise the stem the same amount that you raised your saddle, or shorten it this to, you know, to to follow you back. I've noticed, like over my like very long evolution of slow changes in crank length, my position 
has changed just the way I ride a bike now, like since riding an SMP, Mm. uh, now, I mean, I've, I can ride with a pretty flat back, whereas before I was so hunched over. So that's added, you know, I can ride with a 20 millimeter longer stem. Yeah. Just because I'm more upright. Yeah. I'm moving, I'm rotated, you know, instead of hunched so much, I, I, yeah. I can reach the bars. They're closer relatively to yep. Yep. all this stuff. So a very common experience with SMP. You ride with a more extended spine, so you need, you can use more reach. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, I, you know, it's a it's a it's a it's a deep dark rabbit hole. It once mm-hmm. you change crank length, nothing will be exactly the same ever again because you can't change one thing on a bike and have everything else remain constant. That's it. So you have to be a little bit up for. You have to be flexible. You have to be willing to rotor till. Yeah. I think of it like a spider web. You pull on one strand in a spider web and the whole thing will move. That's a, that's bike fitting, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. So you can't, you know, yes, it's to maintain your perfect position. You might need, you know, three millimeter shorter stem, but that mm-hmm. doesn't exist for good reason. And you'll just have to choose <laughs> one or the other and do your best, you know? Yeah. Um, like I think you, you said you need to, you know, if you change your cleat position or whatever, that shouldn't like obliterate your riding ability. Right. If you do make a two millimeter change, that shouldn't make you chronically painful. If someone, yeah, if someone's injured from those tiny changes, we're not durable enough. That's a, that's a red flag. Durable. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That's a big red flag for me. I kind of echo that. Mm-hmm. mentality but yeah I, I i try to encourage people to just like take one step at a time instead of buying two thousand dollars of parts all at once and yep. um you know talk talk to some uh local fitters like chris balzer i don't know mm-hmm. if you're familiar with him probably oh, yeah yeah um he said a lot of times when on like a tt or triathlon situation he'll often you know, raise the saddle and he can keep the front end of the bike at the same level. Mm-hmm. It was, it doesn't need to trend the seat and the saddle height and the handlebar height doesn't necessarily need to translate with the rider. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Uh, so, so that's kind of where I stand on, on the fit portion a little bit. You're going to have to feel it out and changing crank length. If you're not open to it, mentally you're not going to be happy even if your body's happier with it yeah it's a there is a a mental aspect for being down for it agreed yeah if you have a very inflexible mindset then you might run into challenge in this process and you will it does it does in some way you you really can feel leverage you can perceive that torque and that leverage very well with your body just like you can perceive two millimeters different seat height if you ride a lot you can feel it uh so but there's a a difference between perception and impact Mm. the having does that reduce your power uh probably not Mm -hmm. does that does that change your speed probably not 
much mm-hmm. change in crank length. Um, but do you feel it? Yes. It feels That's, like a lot, yeah. which is why people change five millimeters and it, it feels like a lot, but it doesn't actually make that big. When you step back from a, a bike fitter's point of view, oh, you only moved a few mil, you only moved this, you know, you only moved your knee from your shoulder a few millimeters, which, you know, isn't a large percentage of change. Right. It's just like holding up that two and a half millimeter tall Allen key. Something. Yeah. Just, yeah. Yeah. So, mm. yeah. And that, our, our height changes two and a half millimeters or more in one day just from the effects of gravity, you know, right. sleep all day, all night horizontally. And then we get up vertically and measure yourself precisely at seven in the morning and at seven at night, see what happens. Yeah. So that's great. Uh, one, one thing I want to point out to riders that they may not be aware of, cause I don't think people quite think this through maybe, but when we look at the, the way the math works out, it's quite interesting. So let's go back to our example of a rider who came in on 175s and then they leave on 155s mm-hmm. from a fit session or a given period of time. And let's pretend that their seat height was close to optimal with the 175s for that crank. Mm-hmm. And so what are we doing when we raise the saddle one to one or close, you know, plus or minus, what we're trying to do really is keep the knee extension angle at the bottom of the stroke similar. Yes. And, and so when we do that at bottom dead center, we're going to get theoretically the same angle of at the ankle, the, between the ankle, between the foot and the lower leg and between the lower leg and the upper leg, those angles are going to be the same. Mm-hmm. But what we're changing is the angle between the torso and the femur, right? We're yep. opening that angle. It's not as acute. Now, what's cool is when you go from 175s to 155s and then you l- raise your saddle 20 millimeters in our hypothetical example, that means at top dead center, which isn't where the crank is vertical, it's where the crank is in line with the seat tube, where you would have the most acute angle of ankle dorsiflexion the most acute angle of knee flexion and the most acute angle between the torso and the femur. Mm -hmm. At that point, the crank is not 20 millimeters lower than it was. It's 40. Right. The foot is 40 millimeters. It doubles because you raised your saddle and you, the crank is less tall, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So the crank is coming up. So you get this doubling effect. Yeah. You get a double effect. Yeah. And that's assuming that you do raise your bars one to one also. Yes. Right. If you keep your bars where they were, then you, you kind of made two steps forward and maybe one back in a sense, because your torso angle, your saddle to bar drop got bigger, Mm -hmm. right? If you don't raise the bars and I'm not saying to do one or the other, I'm just pointing out once people understand kind of how those relationships work, they can be smart about it. It's like, okay. Yeah. And I have some, so I have on my website, the, the rider's guide to crank length. It's like a really long article. If you have six spare hours, go read it, go check cool. it out. Cool. But I have, I have that, those exact graphics Great. on there. So I drew, uh, I drew a person in bike CAD, put them on a bike. And then I change, you can see the angle of the hip and the angle of the knee and torso changing between 135, 145, 155, all the way to 175 and then back. Cool. So you can kind of see what happens. Okay. Uh, that's sort of my, that, that rider's guide to crank length is sort of my, my view of everything. Crank length, what I've found, 
some of what other people think, some of what I think. Um, but yeah, that that graphic of of where you're, and you'll see that if you look, if you can find that there's there's a graphic where it has the where your knee at the top of the pedal stroke is bent the most. Yep. That's actually at a slightly different, um, your crank is in a slightly different position than your, when your hip is closed. Right. Yeah. The most. That's you true. Know, I think yeah, one, right. one's at yeah. about 11 o'clock and one's at about one o'clock. One o'clock. Yeah. Uh, I think that yeah. as the crank comes over the top, the, knee, the hip will close and the knee starts to open. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. 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 That's so, a good point. Yeah. But, you know, if you go top, pick something and, you know, the difference is fairly small. Yeah. Top dead center or in line with the seat tube. Those are all like really good. It, you don't have to physically find the. Right. The point. Right. Point one degree angle where it's the smallest. Yeah. But, this is a great article. I have seen this before. I don't think I've read all of it, but I definitely have seen that that graphic you have that kind of rotates through different crank arms and shows people what that is happening there. So for then, sure, I'll let a link. keeping bar height the same. The same, right. Yeah. So I'll put the link to this in the show notes for people. Um, but you can also just go to applemanbicycles.com and click on his crank page, and then you'll see a link on there to that uh, article, which is called A Rider's Guide to Crank Length, if you want to understand more. Yeah. So, Yeah. Cool resource. Yeah, I, in that I outline, you know, uh, stem length, bar width, uh, frame size, top tube length, seat tube length, everything. It varies. It ranges, you know, from small to extra large. Mm -hmm. That's usually there's about a twenty to twenty five percent size range for almost every bike part, mm -hmm. uh, kind of related to fit. Stems are even more because they go from like 35 yeah. millimeters to 150. Right. Uh, but crank length is 6%. Mm -hmm. So, you know, inseam length is 20%. That kind of varies between people. Um, height varies about the same. And then yeah. there's crank length, which is single digits. Uh, 165 to 175 is only about a 6% difference. And why is that? Uh, I don't, I'm, I'm not the, the crank historian, mm -hmm. but, but from what I understand is, uh, the, the, how the manufacturing method to make things like cranks in at least they still do it today, but much more so in the ye olden days, mm -hmm. um, you would have this big, like a hundred ton press and it would hydraulically compress and smush the aluminum into a mold. Um, We're talking like that. All of that equipment and molding is really intense, really expensive. So yeah. to make that profitable, you need to bust out a hundred thousand or a million of the same parts over and over and over again to pay for all of yeah. that infrastructure to be able to make something mm. at, at a price point a low price point and mm -hmm. it's not a bad way to make a crank, but what they would do is just make one part and just drill two or three different holes. Yeah. In that same, well, they would drill one hole, but you know, it, the same 
aluminum blank would be used. They would drill 175 yeah. in one and then just scoot it back at yeah. 172.5 yep. in a different one and then 170. Mm -hmm. um, and you, you, you couldn't go to, you know, one what makes sense to have it go to 135 because then you'd have giant 40, 40 yeah. millimeters of like excess, just like. Yeah. Long crank length, not doing anything. Yeah. With so I think sexy. it's that, that manufacturing method is very expensive to change crank lengths mm -hmm. to a large degree is sort of how we ended up, how we ended up at like 170 is like the normal, I don't know. Yeah. Exactly. It, it's what worked and people kept doing it and the body is amazing and Short people and tall people can all ride the same crank leg, and most of the time it it works fairly well. Yeah. Another maybe advantage of short cranks, though, that people perhaps aren't aware of, and you'll know this as a frame manufacturer, obviously, is that there are all kinds of compromises made in frames that are built for really short people, right? Oh yeah. Uh, you know, anyone who's on a fifty-one or smaller, mm -hmm. they've got toe overlap problems, and how most manufacturers try to solve this problem or work around it because they don't want the litigious action of someone uh, turning their bars really acutely in a parking lot when they're going really slow, which is when you turn your bars and then they catch the toe on the yep. wheel and boom, they go over and break their collarbone and then sue the, the manufacturer is they change all the angles. And so they, what they do is they try to effectively kick the front end out. So they usually they'll make the head tube angle more slack, right? Yep. To kick the front so get axle the front away. Out to get the wheel out the, but and the seat the tube seat angle tube. forward yeah so that the reach which doesn't further pushes the front wheel from the bottom bracket yeah yeah and then most of the time they don't actually correct the handling with a different fork you could you could do okay with that like if you're if you decide that in a 56 frame you're going to go with a 73 head angle and a 40 offset or whatever yeah you know then you go down to a 71.5 i'm just making up numbers for example in a small frame you would need to compensate for that with a different offset fork to get the same trail, but they don't do that normally because making another fork, it's the same problem as the crank. You have to make a mold yeah. for a new fork, which requires another billion dollars or whatever, or million dollars. And or, and so they don't do that. They just put the same fork on for all frame sizes. So basically women who ride size 48 frames kind of get screwed because they have toe overlap because they don't really solve the problem. The frame geometry is really not great. For them and the handling sucks too or it's not what it could be it's not what it could be right. especially for someone who's trying to ride a crick because they've got this chopper bike with too long of an offset right so yeah short cranks help us with that if assuming that you can then put those short cranks on a bike that is custom made then the custom geometry the, the builder has the option to optimize the geometry a little more for you so the bike handles the way it ought to in that size right yeah it's kind of a cool solution yeah so you yeah, from a frame building point of view, I mean, I, I would argue that 100% of every bike that's designed today is designed around crank length. It's mm. just all designed around the same crank length. Mm -hmm. So we don't really see that as a, but, but just like you described, there's workarounds that they keep, I mean, those extra small 48 centimeter frames are still coming with 170 cranks. Yeah. 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 Most of the time. Uh, yeah. It's I a mess. Look, looked up some brand, every, every size, extra small, the extra large, all 172.5. It's because it's what they've got to use. Blow, blows my mind. 
but anyway yeah um yeah yeah so you can you can you shorten the crank 20 millimeters now you can shorten the top tube 20 millimeters yep um sorry that's the other thing i forgot to mention they they lengthen the top tube to get the wheel far away too that's the yeah. first one i think i didn't i didn't i don't think i mentioned that but and when they do that of course then you've got a really short rider with a really long top tube for their size Mm-hmm. So then you're looking for a 40 stem form or 50 stem form as a fitter. Otherwise they're like way too stretched out. Yeah. 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 So, so yeah, you can, you can, re- it gives you at least wiggle room to reduce, reduce top tube length. Yep. Um, you can increase, you can uh, have a slacker seat tube angle. So that can help with just your fore aft balance on the bike. You can, and you would want to then drop the bottom bracket. So if you, if you, if the goal is to, if you're in a crit, there's a certain angle when you're pedaling that your pedal is going to hit. Mm-hmm. Well, if you put shorter cranks on, now you can turn sharper. Yep. Without worrying uh, about pedal strike. Maybe that's what you want. It's like your bottom bracket is higher. Yeah. But if in a, if you have a perfect design and you're modifying it, you'd want to. Take 20 millimeters off your crank length, drop your bottom bracket 20 millimeters. Right. So then right. you're at that same lean angle. Um, what that'll do is also now your saddle is 20 millimeters closer to the ground. Mm-hmm. Uh, it also improves standover height for a short rider as always a challenge. Standover height makes yeah. it easier to get on and off. That racking uh, yourself. Just yeah. as like a uh, coffee shop rider. I mean, who, why not throw your leg 20 millimeters less over the bike? Right. Uh, cyclocross, that's 20 millimeters less you have to jump. Yep. Yeah. Uh, um, <laughs> so, yeah, yep. it, crank length is absolutely a driving factor in all frame design. Just no one knows it. That's really it interesting. It doesn't change. Yeah. But everything is built around crank. It has to be built around it. Yeah. It's almost and like that comes evident in small, yeah, in small frames. When you build an extra large sixty-two centimeter frame and you use one seventy-five cranks, you know, for most people, that's probably gonna be short for them. Mm-hmm. Even though we've been fairly conditioned to think that one seventy-five is very long, right? Uh, one, I haven't gotten a lot of criticism of the cranks, but. When, when the comments blow up, the comment section blows up, it's always the six foot four single speed rider saying, <laughs> Yep. I ride. Why don't you make two tens? My inseam is 38 inches and yeah. I ride 175 and 180 was better. Right. And it's like, Yeah. Okay. That's the one. That's another application, single speed. You really can use that leverage. You only have one gear, so you can't shift. Yep. But also, if we run... uh, uh, Dr. Jim Martin, he suggests a 20% um, inseam length is a good start for uh, crank length. Calculating crank length, yeah. And I use that. (laughs) That's one of the calculators I have on my website and in uh, the guide to crank length. Yeah, it, that says they should be riding 195s. Right, right. So you're thriving on 180s as a six foot four, huge inseam 
person. Yeah. He's like, yeah, I, I hate to break it to you, but if that were me or a normal person, that would be 145, mm. you know, or that would be 155 because it's okay. You're, you're riding 15 millimeters short on the short end of the stick. Yep. It sounds, yes, 180 is long, but not for you. For someone else. So my crank system gives people the opportunity to, you know, if they want to go shorter than they maybe need, you can. Mm-hmm. Like I, so I, I rode for six or seven years, 155s, happy as could be. I started this crank project and as I was prototyping stuff, I was like, well, I might as well try 145. Mm-hmm. Holy smokes. Was did that ever feel good? Wow! It, I didn't need it, but it just felt good. Ah, it's, I mean, I'm I'm a relatively thin person, but I still my hip angle is pretty closed, mm-hmm. so I still sometimes will feel you know my legs are churning my stomach. I'll feel a little bit of uh, contact there, mm-hmm. and man, to get my legs like totally open off my torso. Again, I'm rotated forward on my SMP, mm-hmm. um, yep. pushing my stomach mm-hmm. even closer uh, to the top yep. of my eyes. Yeah. Uh, but There's boy, it just there. felt good. Yeah. Um, so now I ride 145s just because I like how it feels. Okay. I don't I could ride 155s and be happy, but I just like how 145 feels. And yeah, there's a, a paradox there with anterior pelvic rotation and extension of the spine, it does close the hip angle. Yeah. And it's still my, it's still my preferred baseline recommendation for most riders because when your spine is, when your sacrum is really vertical and you're in that flexed position, your spine is very rounded like Sean Kelly, right? Rainbow spine. Yeah. It's not, spines are like hoses. Hoses don't like to be kinked, right? Right. What flows through our spine? Uh, You know, really important stuff like cerebral spinal fluid really important for that to flow i mean breathing starters, then there's yeah. breathing there's glute breathing glute engagement lots of good reasons yeah. yeah yeah so yeah agreed um that's really interesting to hear you talk about the 145s the other part that i'll mention in case someone's still kind of like trying to get their head wrapped around this there's a simple analogy i use Mm-hmm. And this will only really apply to people intuitively if there are people who have been in a gym and done free weights. So we can use a, a lunge or a squat is a more common one, right? Mm-hmm. Pretty simple. Like where do you get stuck in a squat? Like you lift too much weight. You go for one rep too many in your set. You get stuck at the bottom, right? You get down to the bottom and you're like, whoa, what is the yeah. moment of weakness there? Why is that the sticking point? It's because you're at maximal flexion of all the joints, right? Mm-hmm. So are you now if i put let's pretend that your normal weight is whatever well i'll just make up numbers for the for the sake of ease your normal weight for 12 reps is 200 pounds in a squat let's say one day you walk in and i'm your coach and i'm like hey man we're gonna do something cool today and i put on 275 mm-hmm. and you've never even squatted that much before you're going right. okay i know i can do 200 pounds for 12 reps but that's a lot of freaking weight man i don't even know if i can get that down once without falling over to ease your mind, I tell you, well, don't worry. We're only doing quarter squats today. Mm-hmm. Be like, oh, okay, I can probably do that. You don't need to go down as far. That's it. This is yep. what short cranks are. It's reduced range of motion. 
it doesn't mean you're producing less force. You are producing probably in many cases more force because it's a shorter range of motion. That's the example I like to give people. And most people get that intuitively. You could have the same example with a leg sled if you are using a leg sled, but. Or Chris Balzer likes to use a staircase. You know, on, mm-hmm. you, there's, there's two scared staircases in front of you. One has steps yeah. that are a foot tall. Yeah. One has steps that are nine inches tall. There's Which more one? steps on the short. Yeah. But they all go to the same door. They all go to the same floor. So mm-hmm. what, what do you want to do? Do you want to, you know, you're right. just, it's, it's going to be a little easier just to go up the short staircase. Yeah. And just boop, 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 boop. Instead well, of try it. bustling try it. through each one. The next time you go to a staircase, try going up, go up four steps in each, <laughs> in each foot revolution and see what happens, see how it feels and yeah. notice how much additional force you have to use and how the joints are more at more extreme ranges to produce that force. That's yes. what we're talking how, about. How it becomes a total body workout to do right. three or four stairs instead of just doing one stair, <laughs> you're very stable, very comfortable. Yeah. You're not yeah. straining. Yeah. Um, so that's one way to think about it too. Um, yeah. The other, the other thing that is interesting to me is over my career, I've seen many athletes go through an impingement of the artery at the hip, right? Mm-hmm. And they've had to have surgery to relocate this artery or graft it or move it, or there's different ways to handle that problem, right? But yeah. This is from chronic hip flexion, extreme amounts of hip flexion. And, you know, maybe I'll, I'll find a picture of uh, a few older athletes to put up here in his examples, but the... I mean, I've ridden around for years with extreme amounts of hip flexion in my cycling, but one shiny example of that is Chris Boardman when he did his early days hour records when he was on that uh, Karima frame. I mean, there's multiple photographs of him riding on the track and his thigh, his whole thigh is like parallel with his torso. Like there's no air, there's no light of day going between those two. His knee is about to hit his collarbone. Yeah, pretty much, right? (laughs) And... Chris tolerated that well, and, yeah. but many people don't, I think, you know, he had extreme mobility of, of some of those joints in that plane of yeah. movement. And I do too, but one misconception about athletics, especially endurance athletics is I think we all confound the idea that uh, a flexible athlete is that being flexible is a good thing, right? We, we equate those two things. And I think we were brainwashed w- with this idea in gym class, the concept being right. that we stretch before exercise to prevent injury. And so therefore by extrapolation, we all assumed that a flexible person doesn't get injured as often, but this is false logic, right? And we can see this easily. If you can consider the example of our, a crappy old car that's got blown out suspension and struts. And we take a 500 horsepower engine and we slap that in there and then go drive it down the road. Yeah. You no, know, you're an engineer, you know, like what's going to happen. The system is going to fail at its weak point because you've put, you've, you've got a very imbalanced system. You've got a really strong engine and a really wobbly chassis right Right. so it's not going to make a good car in the end that's what Uh, that's what i fight i mean not that my engine is very strong but i just i'm always fighting the weak chassis yeah yeah you've got mobile joints or mobile mobile uh have you ever done a biton test no i've not heard of that it's a it's a nine point exam that you can do it's really simple and it just tells you what the how what the tension of your ligaments is you know Mm. Interesting. 
And so if some people, they're, you know, they score really high in a biting, it's like, oh, this is a person who we have to be very careful about, about prescribing training for them with a lot of high force because mm-hmm. the chances of them getting injured is astronomical because they don't have yeah. the ligamentous integrity to stabilize their joints. So yeah. the muscles are firing and the joints are just moving too much. They're going to injure themselves. The chances yeah. are off the charts. Well, I know, I mean, personally, when I've done, when I really can focus on core work and I know this, the, the strongest core I've ever had in my life, I was just really smashing the pedals like so much harder. And yep. it made me realize that my, my legs are, are, are stronger, but they don't do any good if my core or body as a whole can't kind of contain and control that. I'm just like, That's it. it's like that extra power. I'm just like pushing into thin air. I yeah. can't, I can't push it into the pedals to move forward. It just, mm-hmm. I mean, you can almost feel it when you recognize when I recognize it now, mm-hmm. if I'm pushing, I mean, anything really for me, like over four or 500 Watts, it's just like, I can feel like I'm just not quite that core stability. And yeah. when I had that really good strength, I could just, it's like, there was no limit. I mean, your muscles burn and that stops you, but it wasn't this just like squishy feeling that you just like can't quite push. Yeah. You're just torquing to try and it's pretty incredible. Yeah. You can't fire a cannon from a canoe. (laughs) Exactly. That's better put. Mm -hmm. So my, my, my question for you would be, um, you see someone that you know needs shorter cranks. How do you determine what crank length they need? Mm. Is one sixty-five enough? Is one forty-five enough? How you know? That's a great question. I wish I had a really clear answer on that. I don't honestly. Yeah, I mean, you can sort of infer. I really, to be honest, you're using a crystal ball. It's like someone comes yeah. in on one seventy-fives, and you're looking at them, and you're going okay, they've got chronic low back pain or, or they're just really struggling to find stability in the hips. And they're, they've got that spiral pattern happening big time. Like I talked about in some of my other episodes. Yeah. So they're really rotating. Their hips are moving in the transverse plane or the frontal plane or both. And, you know, we do all, we check all the other boxes, right? We're making sure their cleat position is dialed and saddle height and reach. And we look at their mobility and yeah, these people always have tight, tight spokes, we'll say, and loose spokes. That's the analogy I use. Yeah. Typically their quads and anterior hips are really tight. So when, when I'm recommending crank though, I, I mean, for somebody who's really, I'm convinced that they need a shorter crank. I'll, I'll be in the same camp as you. I'll say, look, if you're going to spend the money, you got to go at least 10 mils. Yeah. But I sort of look at the pile of things that's pointing him towards a shorter crank. And the more things there are, the more confident I am that an even shorter crank is going to work. Well, go shorter and shorter. Go shorter. So some of those things would be, um, you know, when you have really muscly short athletes, like very, um, mesomorph type, you know, athlete that's under five, 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 six, kind of real barrel chested. And yeah. maybe they're carrying extra weight. Maybe they're not. Maybe they're super lean, but they have really muscly thighs and short legs. Those people are just fighting with long cranks. They're just hitting themselves in the chest all day long. Yep. And 
the solution is to slam their saddle forward is the only thing you can do to even get them to pedal. But sometimes, then of course that changes weight distribution and shuts off glute recruitment and puts them into quad dominance typically. And those but athletes are already even bigger. Yes. Smacking them more. Right. <laughs> it's like <laughs> a negative feedback loop. So, you know, if they come in on 170s and I'm seeing them, I'm going, okay, I have guys that are very similar to you who have gone to 150s who are really happy. Yeah. And then you're feeling, you you always, fitting is always about meeting the client where they're at, right? So yeah. it's like you start to plant seeds and see how they respond. Have you ever talked about short cranks? What? No, I don't want to give up that leverage. Okay. All right. I've got to. Yeah got to do a bit more prep work here. But if they're like, oh yeah, I kind of been seeing that around and one of my friends changed and he really liked it, but I'm not sure, but I've been thinking about it. It's like, okay, cool. So yeah. let me show you what I see. Here's my iPad video I just took of you and look at how this angle is super acute and you're hitting yourself in the chest. And we see your butt's actually hiccuping on the saddle a little bit because you don't have the hip range there. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, if you went to, if you took a big step forward, I'm, I'm quite confident that would feel really good. There'll be some adaptation and yeah, yeah it'll feel different but ultimately you're going to be happier on the bike. So, but other than me basically looking at how out of whack they are and what challenges they're having mm -hmm. and then sort of evaluating that on the possibility. The other thing is honestly, Matt, like until your solution came along, it was more like, well, how short can I get them and what's available? You know? Yeah. Going to rotor site, right? Yep. Shimano, they've got some 160s out there for some of their lower end cranks, but if somebody's on Durace and they're, they're riding that level of bike and they won't consider something, you know, lower end than 105. Yeah. 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 So there aren't other than rotor and a handful of SRAM and Shimano cranks that are around 160 or 165s. Yeah. Um, I feel like I'm forgetting one. There's some other option out there that there, mm -hmm. but there's not. Yeah. Yeah. Cobbs. That's about it. Right. We don't yeah. have short crank as an option. We don't. Those are hundred percent road, which right. is, which is the majority of what I sell and probably the majority of people you see. Mm -hmm. uh, but then that same person, you know, goes on their gravel bike or yeah. mountain bike and they do. want the same thing or need the same thing. And what do you do? Yeah. So that's, yeah. that pissed me off enough. I have five different widths and Q factors. Yeah. So all the way from road to fat bike. Yep. Um, and it's all modular. Like I just had a guy email me and say, I've got two bike, I got a mountain bike and a fat bike. What's the minimum I need to buy to swap between the bike, the two mm -hmm. bikes? It's like, okay, you need two spindles, mm -hmm. one fat, one mountain. And then Depending if you have the same chain ring on both bikes, you can keep the spider and chain ring, transfer that over, and then you can transfer the crank arms back and forth. And it takes about three to five minutes to swap crank arms. Yeah. With my system between yeah. bikes or just change lengths. Um, so it's fairly easy once you do the initial setup. Yeah. Uh, once the spindle's in there. I, yeah. It was important to me to, I, the whole crank set, you only need a five millimeter Allen wrench mm -hmm. to assemble. That's cool. And, and that was something important to me because I don't, I think it, you know, a lot of, I could have saved, I think 10, 10 or 12 grams if I did like a, I could have had one of the bolts be like a 10 millimeter wrench that you need. Yeah. Doesn't. Yeah five millimeters is small and you could remove more material, but no one has a 
10. millimeter wrench. And sometimes you don't even have an eight millimeter wrench yeah. Yeah. when you're out on the road. So I wanted- This just happened to us the other day. We were riding and a guy's crank started to fall off on the ride. Yeah. <laughs> Luckily, we were on a road, a gravel ride, and we were riding past a trailhead, and there were all these mountain bikers, and we rode up, I'm like, hey, man, and the guy had a toolbox in his trunk. Like, Somebody had something. Do you have yeah. a 10? And he was like, yeah, I got one right here. We're like, oh, thank you so much. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> yeah. That's it. Yeah. So it's a lot of little things when I designed the crank. Like, I didn't I didn't just make it short. Yeah. You know, I didn't just make it wide. It's also, and this is a very higher order thing, but it's like, fairly easy to work with and pleasant to work with. And I've tried to minimize the number of standards. I try to, my spiders and stuff, I use the, as many open standards as I can. Uh, about four different spiders I see on here, a 104 mountain, a 110 Shimano for Shimano rings, a 110 by five for road, and then a 144 for track even. Yep. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So people sometimes ask for, do you have the SRAM BCD spider? And I say, which one? Right. Because <laughs> they have at least two. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's just like, I just, it's, I don't know if I'm like getting older and like turning into more of a Fred or if the bike <laughs> industry itself has gotten worse, but it's just oh, like, come, I know, come on. I know the answer to that. <laughs> I know the answer to that. Yeah. yeah. Probably both. That industry. Yeah. It's like, I've, I've seen like SRAM especially has really pulled, pulled away from Shimano and everybody's doing everything they can to keep you a hundred percent in the SRAM pond or yep. the Shimano pond or yep. whatever brand. Or and they're be. making it really difficult to get out of that. So um, that's it. Yeah. So I try to provide chain rings and the whole package as much as I can to work with as many groups as possible. Mm -hmm. Pretty much the only frames the cranks don't work with are the older Trek uh, frames that use the shima like the 24 millimeter only spindles. Right. So they just have a really small hole in the yep. frame and you just can't put a 30 millimeter spindle or the bearing in there. Replace the bearings. Yeah. Even with external bearings. Yeah. 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 They make it again. You're very it's too physically limited there. You can't go external because it's already it's too wide set it's a BB 92. Right. Yeah, Is that it. BB ninety yeah. and ninety two, or ninety. BB ninety and ninety five. Okay. BB ninety, yeah. BB ninety five do not work, but otherwise, every bike on the planet will fit by cranks. Awesome. Um, and you've got twelve colors for your crank arms and your bolts and your spiders. That's cool. You can do gold and black and gray and navy and so it's quite different, you know. Pink and turquoise. Yeah, yeah. Again, it's like. Back in the day, Rotor had that red bolt uh -huh. in the center of their cranks. And it's like, as someone who's building like high-end bikes that are all murdered out, and then yeah. you have one red bolt, and it's just like, ah, <laughs> uh, take it away. <laughs> so I take everything. I mean, I, I put everything into these cranks, like everything that pissed me off and everything I needed as a frame builder. Mm -hmm. And I really try to 
I'm really focused on the customer. And I try to think through with the website, like if I was a customer, what what do I want to know? How do I, you know, what's the easiest way to do things? Mm-hmm. Um, I try hard to put myself in the customer's shoes or other people's shoes to put, you know, the way I run the business and do things and communicate with people mm. and have the website. I'm very customer focused mm. and that I'm, I, I love the customer service side of things. I'm a, probably a better customer service person than a frame builder. <laughs> that the actual fabrication of, of things, but, my my aptitude is that you know I'm I'm not really bad at anything and I'm not like a hundred percent I'm not a hundred percent engineer mm. I'm not a hundred percent artist I'm not a hundred percent fabricator like there's people who could like outbuild me under the table absolutely mm. but they also can't pick up the phone and or answer an email <laughs> so that's that's very true. Yeah. So I do, I'm not like the best at anything, but I do, I do enjoy the like wide variety of things that I do do. Um, anyway, kind of getting back to, to crank length. Like for me, I've sort of adopted, uh, Jim Martin's suggestions of 20% of inseam Mm -hmm. and 41%, I think of tibia length is going to give you a lot better estimate of what I guarantee is that it'll give you a better estimate of crank length than what came on your bike. Yeah. So Mm. you might have to play around with it, but it's going to, that's better than, that's better than what brand X thought you needed when you bought your bike. Yeah. So most of the time people are very shocked yeah, of what they see. Um, if I had a magic wand every, and you could only pick one crank length, every bike would have 155s. Mm. I think that would be fit the most people the best. Okay. Just put them all in 155s. If you had two crank lengths, 155 and 165. Yeah. To go back and forth between? Well, no, I mean, then, yeah, if, you know, in my fictional crank length world, if there were yeah. only limited numbers, you know, and then one 175 would be for like really tall people, mm-hmm. essentially, you yeah. know, would be equal to the like 145 and 135. Mm-hmm. So I've I've sold I'm happy to say I've sold more 135 millimeter cranks than 175. Mm-hmm. Part of that is because there's a lot of other options for 175. Yeah, but I and mean, a lot like, of people already own 175, so they're not. Yeah, like, so you don't yeah. you don't need it unless you want a pink and turquoise crank. Then right. there's a right. lot of other options. Right. Um, but right. yeah, I found like it's a lot of people doing triathlon time trials like 135 you know who are on like the shorter end of the spectrum yeah 135 seems to i mean whatever crank length it's shorter you're going from 165 or something it's going to be a big difference 
Yep. Um, yep. But, but yeah, and then I also look at when I, and again, I have these calculators in that article. I also have like a knee angle calculator. Mm-hmm. Which I kind of came up with, you know, what worked for me personally and a few people in my circle of what worked and what didn't. And that was also pretty much the same as, um, oh shoot, I'm forgetting his name now. Uh, there's a fitter in San Diego who came out with an article kind of based on recommending crank length oh. based on, um, is it Curtis Cramblett maybe? No. He's in San Diego. I think he's in Rick Schultz. Okay. Uh, I've heard he's controversial. But, okay. Um, this crank length article, I link it in the writer's guide to crank length. Um, I found to be pretty, my, my findings seem to agree with his findings for the mo- okay. for most things. Um, and that's just, measuring the the max the 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 most shallow the tightest knee angle Uh, and he found that generally people did better when it was i think greater than 69 degrees a few degrees you know 66 to 69 degrees some people had knee pain some people didn't uh when it was less than 66 degrees a lot of people had knee pain that he saw Hmm. um that is also kind of what, what I've found. Not that I've fit thousands of people or hundreds of people, but in my own experience and small circle that I can measure that with. Mm. Um, as a, a tool in the quiver, I don't think anything is absolute. You know, you can't trust. As you often say, there are no rules in bike fittings. Mm-hmm. The only rule is there, um, there is no rule. There's no rule. But for the for most people, just to get an idea, I think mm-hmm. there's good. I think, you know, going with a calculator can at least be like, am I in a ballpark? Mm-hmm. I mean, I ride 20 at least at least 10 millimeters shorter than what all of my own calculators predict. And you've had great results with that. So that's I've had yeah, great results. Yeah. Case in point. Yeah. So that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. There's a two edged sword there for me with normative data, right? It's like the risk is that people second guess their own decisions and they want to be, they want to desperately glue themselves to the, the tribe or the herd or the, the, the be average in the data set for whatever reason. It's weird yes. how human psychology works. In some ways we really want to be average and in other ways we don't at all. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I don't know what that's all about, but, um, the risk there is that you know, of course you overlook a solution that is staring you right in the face because you're glued to being in that bell curve of data. Right. Uh, and as a fitter, I think that's more for an individual person to do that and try it. If they go from, you know, being on the verge of quitting the sport or chronic injury or chronic pain to now I can ride my bike, then obviously that was an upgrade. The risk yeah. is that they're overlooking exactly your paradigm, which is well, I could have gone further the other way. It crank like being the option. And then had an even more pleasurable experience or been able to ride my bike even more. Cause you went from 
you know, being relatively pain-free to like, wow, now I'm actually enjoying it over, over that yeah. journey. Right. That's the, the risk is that people miss the opportunity for that kind of change. Um, yeah. But if they, if they stop at the recommended, right. yeah. I mean, yeah, in my, my experience, I think a lot of people go, you know, it says 145 and they're like, all right, let's, let's hold on. Mm-hmm. Let's just try 155 because. Yeah. That are, not 155 so already sounds really short to me. Yep. I don't want to like yep. overdo it. Yeah. <laughs> and, well, and to be fair, I've never ridden on 155s, not for more than a couple minutes on the SRM bike. So, sure. yeah, uh, I've got, well, you don't, own. you don't need it till you need it. You don't need it till you need it, but ideally we have it before we need it. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully it right. can prevent you from needing it in yes. the future. Yes. <laughs> you need to, yeah. A uh, big enough crisis will precipitate change. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, Cool. Um, this was a really interesting conversation, Matt. I, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to break down your methodology and your philosophy on short cranks with the right, with, uh, my audience for, yeah. especially given your own journey. You know, this is the second podcast I've done recently where I would say there's a very parallel path, which is kind of the, the theme is that in both cases, someone hit a point of crisis mm-hmm. and that crisis inspired them to make a new product for the world. Mm. And there's a lot of power in that because yeah. effectively you're the, you're the wounded healer who now heals others. Right. Mm-hmm. That's the way I think about it. That's, that's really cool. But that said. Your words, not mine, but yes. Yes. That said, I don't want to see you quit frame building because I think you make amazing frames. No, so not. hopefully I'm you're not. not. Okay. I got, I got, I got the comeback that nobody knew I was coming back to coming. So <laughs> good. Okay. <laughs> But yeah, yeah, thanks for having me. I should say, if you want to check out my website, applewindbicycles.com, yep. you shouldn't be able to miss the crank page. Um, check it out. They start at $485, which sounds like a lot, but for my size, I'm very nano-sized, and for what I what I do to them, it's, uh, I'm not making hand over fist money so <laughs> well so a relatively of, good deal if you're on the verge of quitting the sport because you've got knee or back pain and you spend 500 bucks on a new crank set and then you can ride it's the best worth every penny right yeah absolutely and this is the only solution on the market for a lot of these i think i think crank length <laughs> is right behind you know seat height reach four afts crank length they're all I put them all in the same tier of importance in bike fit. Yeah. Yeah. And if you want to buy one of Matt's bikes, um, get on his waiting list. Yes. (laughs) And I'll put some photos of my bike uh, up on Instagram again for when we drop this pod, just so you can see it. If you remember uh, Matt, he made me the bike we decided in about 2016 or 2017, somewhere in there. And I rode it for a few years and it was raw carbon and it was gorgeous. And then a good couple friends of mine got a hold of it and painted it and they did an amazing hand, uh, custom handmade paint job on the bike with actual gold leaf and all these super cool Japanese designs. And it's incredible. Now I have that 
you know, work of I, art hanging in my garage. I believe I've seen like bits and pieces of the bike, but I don't know that I've ever seen like an overall oh. shot. Oh, okay. Really interesting. I think you've okay. done like some close-ups. Yeah. In the past, but I don't remember seeing like a whole bike shot would be really interesting. to. And I will, I will do a whole bike shot for sure. To, to see. <laughs> okay. I'll, I'll put it out with this pod and I'll do some, some big picture shots. And then a few, like they did your name and gold on there and stuff. Oh, wow. Observe that. It's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's, That's it's so a stunning awesome. bike. And then they yeah. coated the whole thing with Cerakote, clear Cerakote. So it should okay. be fun. Yeah. Yeah. If I, yeah, your bike had like the carbon fiber logos on it. Yep. So it was very, very stealthy, mm-hmm. but you, you can't beat gold and yep. it's such a, it's such a beautiful combo. It's a gorgeous combo. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. yeah. Cool. All right. Well, thanks right. so much for having me. I really appreciate. Thank you, Matt. Able to, to talk and share my stories. Yeah. So. All right. All right. Take care, man. Yeah, you too. Bye. Okay. Epilogue. I want to share a few brief thoughts about the inception of cycling and alignment. The purpose of this podcast is for me to get three and a half decades of hard fought lessons out of my skull. Some of them through my own research and reading. Some of them I've been taught through mentors and colleagues, other riders, other racers. A lot of it, a massive amount of it was simply trial and error through my own stubborn methods. And that has amassed a certain amount of experience and knowledge, understanding. And while I think I'm reasonably smart and I know quite a bit of stuff, I want to make it clear that the opinions that I share on this podcast are belief systems built on what I've experienced to this point. And that some of those opinions are pretty strong but they are also loosely held. That is to say that if I learn more about a topic and have a greater level of clarity or understanding, then my old belief systems will be abandoned and I will now operate under that newfound knowledge. So I'm not here to tell people all the things that I know. I'm here to explain what I've learned to this point. And there's a big difference. Also, that is the intent when I discuss things on the pod with guests is to learn from them and have a discourse. Because if we can't have a discourse as adults, then we've lost one of the basic tenets of modern society. Even if we disagree, we ought to be able to, in most cases, shake hands and walk away. Because after all, This is sport we're talking about. And while sport is training for life, it's nothing to get too upset over. The purpose of the podcast is to help me help other people and specifically to help them actualize their highest potential by illuminating a path that enables alignment with their truth, their intent and their coherence. That's really the end goal. So I'm grateful for your listening. My intent is also not to be clear to gain an audience or become popular or gain social status in any way. I don't care about that stuff. That said, if you feel an episode 
that you have heard will help someone you know, please share it with them. That helps us reach the end goal, which is to help more people. Thank you for listening. I'm grateful for your time and attention. Blessings. Blessings.